I invite you to stand for the reading of our gospel lesson, which comes from the gospel according to St. John, the second chapter, beginning with the first verse. I invite you to listen for God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let me tell you about Sam. Sam lived a rough life on the Georgia frontier, sort of west and north of, of the, the new city of Atlanta. He actually, he lived in several different places up there. For a while, he lived in what we now call Cherokee County, but at the time he lived there, it was Cherokee country on the Georgia frontier. It was a hard life, but he, he worked hard. He was a hard worker. He built up his, a farm, made it productive. He ran a store. For a while, he was sheriff of one of the counties he, he lived in. He had pretty much built up, a, 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 as I say, not a, not a lavish lifestyle, but a, but a good uh, life. When the Civil War came along, he was one of those uh, Georgia farmers, small farmers who was opposed to secession, but the Civil War came anyway and wiped out everything that he had worked so hard to, uh, to acquire. Sam had little, relig- had little use for religion. His wife was a devout Baptist, very strong, very firm. She loved her husband, but she, she wished that he would pay more attention to matters of the spirit. But in 1869, something amazing happened. Sam went to a protracted meeting, revival, long series of religious services. Sam went to a protracted meeting in the town and was converted. Nobody could believe it. Especially his wife, who, who viewed in, in the little church where, where this uh, protracted meeting took place, it was one of those where the men sat on one side and the women sat on the other. Maybe you've been to some of those. Uh, when I was in Wilkinson County, one of the closed churches on, on the circuit was like that. I got to walk in and sort of feel, feel like I was walking back in time. Anyway, his wife saw Sam struggling with the decision to come forward and answer the, the call. 
And she went over to him and she said, Sam, if you will join this church, I will go with you. Notice, she did not say, I will join with you. No, no, she was a firm believer in her Baptist faith and she, she attended worship with Sam whereas for the rest of their life together uh, while, never, while never changing her church membership. The next morning, Sam addressed the family and there were numerous children around the breakfast table. And he said, you know that I joined the church last night and I don't know a great deal about religion, but I think we need to have prayers. And I don't know how to pray, so I have gotten, and he pulled out an Episcopal book of common prayer, and that's how they had prayer for the family from then on. Through this and his other, uh, and his other uh, parts of his life, Sam became the primary and the foremost influence on his children. Sam's last name was Candler. He and his wife had numerous children. The two that we'll spend time on today are one, Warren, Warren Candler, who became a bishop of Georgia Methodism, for whom Candler School of Theology at Emory is named, Creed and I uh, being uh, graduates of that August institution. The other, or, or the other one we're going to pay attention to, was Asa. Asa was a pharmacist, almost self-taught. He worked for different drug companies, but he realized he could make more money by, by developing and selling patent medicines. And so he bought a rather nondescript product from a Dr. Pemberton who had put this together and that uh, nondescript product in with Asa's good sense and promotion became Coca-Cola. You knew the story from the mention, from the moment I mentioned Candler. By the way, I thought about putting a Coke up here on the pulpit and saying, do you know what, what Kirby Smart and I have in common? We, we both speak with a Coca-Cola here on, on our, on our, on the podium, but I decided I probably shouldn't do that, (laughs) but, but it's here. Both Asa and Warren and the other children, one of whom became a judge, others had, had different distinctions, were, were tributes to the living faith that was found by Sam in that protracted meeting and in the life he lived after it. Now, you say, what does Coca-Cola have to do with huge jar, stone jars that turned into wine? The story is that Jesus came to Cana and he found a crisis. The lack of wine at a wedding feast. Well, if you invited friends over for dinner and you ran out of green beans, that would be an embarrassment. In ancient times, if you invited the whole village to a wedding feast and you ran out of wine, that would not be an embarrassment. It would be a crisis the family would be disgraced for years to come. And that is what Jesus walked into. Weddings in that day, I'm told, lasted a week. First, there was a torch-lit procession to the bride's house after they had had reveled a little bit, excuse me, uh, 
then, then they went to, in procession to the groom's house and here the banquet took place. Now the banquet, although John does make reference to people becoming drunk at wedding uh, feasts, the, the focus was not on wild drinking. They mixed the wine with water and in fact, drunkenness itself was, was scorned. Uh, th- this reminds me of a rehearsal dinner that we attended in a, in a town where we once served. It was the wedding of two, uh, of a young man and a young woman, both of whom were from prominent families in the town. So the rehearsal dinner was like the social event of the, of the season uh, with you know, practically everybody uh, in town. And rumor had it that some of the young men had thoughts about ways in which to celebrate that might not be considered good form. Uh, some of you have been in rehearsal dinners where the speeches kind of get off the rail and uh, you're always in trouble when somebody stands up and says, well, I haven't prepared anything. Well, you, you know you're in trouble because it's, it's not, go- not, not going to end well. Well, the, the father of the groom stood up and said, I'd like to say a word to the young men here in the, in, in the dinner. Your mothers are here. Your grandmothers are here. You do not want to embarrass yourselves in front of them. And if you ever wanted, want to be invited back to our family camp house in the future, you need to behave yourself tonight. They were extraordinarily well behaved all, all during the evening. And it was, instead of the, the disaster waiting to happen, it became one of the more enjoyable uh, waiting uh, rehearsal dinners that, that we've been a part of. So it wasn't about getting drunk, but, but not to have enough wine was a terrible crisis for this family. Now, notice John tells us that there were stone jars there for purification. John never wastes a detail. The water for purification was in stone jars, not earthenware jars, because they were subject to uh, contamination, with a reference to Leviticus about that. And, and what John, I think, is saying here is the stone jars empty as they were, prepared, ready for the right Jewish rite of purification. The stone jars represent the Jewish faith, which they all shared at that time. Jesus does not reject it. Jesus does not throw it out. Jesus fills it with something new. And that, I think, is what John believes happens when we come face to face with Christ. He, Jesus does not scorn the faith that they shared, but rather he transforms it, giving them something new, something as different from water as is wine. So different is vital faith from the routine practice of of a hand-me-down faith that means nothing to us. Indeed, Coca-Cola has been scorned. Uh, in different parts of, of our culture as, oh, that's just 99% sugar and water. But it is that tiny little difference that makes it not just a, a, a useless little concoction by Dr. Pemberton, but the foundation of a worldwide empire. In fact, just about every Methodist institution in Georgia is on a better financial footing because of Coca-Cola stock and and the way that that has been managed through the years. Back in the 90s, Leonard Sweet said that the three best known proper names in the world, 
were Jesus, Elvis, and Coca-Cola. And he did a sermon on it. Jesus represented the spiritual culture. Uh, Elvis represented the uh, entertainment culture. And Coca-Cola represented the, the consumer culture. And while over the years, and I, I've heard a rumor, I, I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I've heard a rumor that Elvis has died. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure about that. But, but I, I think maybe Elvis might have declined a little bit since uh, Leonard Sweet preached that sermon. But I think that Jesus and Coca-Cola are still right up there uh, pretty near the top. And the lesson we, we would draw from this, and you knew there had to be some uh, sensible lesson in the middle of all this nonsense, is that something happens to ordinary life when Jesus steps in. In the late 50s, early 60s, an Episcopal layperson whose faith came alive named Keith Miller uh, wrote, he wound up writing a, a number of books. The first one he wrote was called The Taste of New Wine because that described for him the excitement of the new faith that he had found uh, replacing the, the rote and ordinary pa uh, practice of religion that had shaped him until that time. He said that this faith gave him a new dimension of life. It's not different from his ordinary experience, but it transformed his ordinary human experience. Another uh, great preacher gone uh, more recently, gone on to glory, Ellsworth Callis, grew up in Iowa. Uh, if you've been reading about the music man and, and all the stuff about uh, Iowa, uh, you know, we're, we're glad to see you, even if we uh, for, never for, uh, remember to mention it and, and so forth and so on. Ellsworth Callis talks about the culture of hard work that he has, he, that he grew up in and practicality. He said, our weddings were so, uh, were so, uh, un, uh, excuse me, our, our weddings were not overstated. They would have made low Lake Wobegon seem extravagance. Because who, who would spend money on decorations and on festivities when they could use it to make a house payment? But he said when he grew up in this plain, ordinary culture, there was a joy to be found in the church, in telling the stories of new life that had been found. And Callus said he wondered why Jesus devoted himself to this task, of, of, re, of, of doing something at a, at a wedding feast. He said, the story is hard on the earnestness of my Iowa upbringing, but in it I hear echoes, he said, of the laughter that came through in the revival services in our church. Because in the life touched by Jesus, there is joy to be found. And that is as different from ordinary practice of religion as Coca-Cola is from sugar water and as wine is from pure water. Callus said boredom is, is rampant in America. It's an epidemic in America. We have enjoyed too many creature comforts. There, we have looked for too many novel spectacles. We spend our time looking for this, looking for that, until our eyes simply glaze over at the mention of something new. And it can happen in the church. We can lose touch with, with, our, with, with our spirits even as we go through the practice of our, of our religion. Keith Miller told about 
being in, in church where uh, in, in, in a terrible, unfortunate, not terrible, but unfortunate accident, a little girl was stepped on by a man. And she began to, to scream in pain. Her hand had been stepped on by this adult man. And, and her father said, don't cry in front of all these people. And he said, the look on the little girl's face was just incredulous. I'm feeling all this pain and you don't want me to admit it. And yet so often that's what happens in our churches. We do not want to admit the pain in our lives, nor do we want to give rein to the joy in our lives. We can become, we, we want to project an image so long that we forget how we feel. And when that happens, faith becomes a facade. And you know what happens to a facade when it's left without the building to support it. It will soon crumble. And if the, the jars of our religious practice are empty, we need to know that Jesus can fill those jars Jesus can put us back in touch with who we really are. Jesus can connect us not, and who we really are with the person that God made us to be. This week I saw it quoted in a, in a comic strip of all places, Leo Tolstoy saying, everyone thinks of changing the world. No one thinks of changing himself. Part of our calling is to change ourselves. And part of our dilemma is we know we cannot change ourselves as we know we ought to, as we know we want to. And so the good news that comes to us in John 2 is that Jesus can change us uh, into the person that God has intended us to be. He changed the disciples. The last phrase of this text is, is telling the disciples had already listened attentively to Jesus. They had listened respectfully to Jesus. The chief steward saw the wine and said, yeah, I wonder where this came from. The disciples saw the wine and knew the power that had made it happen. They had listened, now they believed. They knew that Jesus, the one whom they had followed, was the difference maker. And he can make the difference in your life if you let him surprise you with love, with hope, and with joy.